You're listening to the Butterfly Effect Podcast, episode number eight. Today I'm sitting down with Callie Youngstrom, or as some of you may know her as KY Fitness. Callie has a huge following on Instagram and has clearly impacted many people's lives with her approach to health and wellness. This episode of the Butterfly Effect Podcast is sponsored by Cypherling Law. Cypherling Law is a boutique law firm with over 60 years of legal experience. A boutique law firm simply means that they are dedicated to one area and have developed a high level of expertise and knowledge in that area. Cypherling Law is focused on management side work and can help you with basic employment issues like hiring, firing, employment contracts, but can also guide you through the tougher stuff like policy development, constructive dismissal, collective bargaining, accommodation, and workplace health and safety. Their growing firm is able to help you respond to all of your labor and employment needs. Whether you are the owner or general contractor of a construction project, managing a small retail store, negotiating with a union, working underground in a mine, or attempting to navigate the upcoming legalization of marijuana, Cypherling Law can help you out. This is the Butterfly Effect Podcast, and I'm Ashlyn Newlove, tackling everything from fitness, nutrition, business, life, ice cream cones, and everything else in between to help inspire people to make one change that causes their ripple effect. Welcome to episode number eight. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm a fitness and nutrition coach helping people have fun, keep fit, and reach their goals while they're at it with my online program, The Sweat Effect. Callie and I became social media friends, like so many people do these days, when her journey with health and fitness intrigued me and I started following her captivating Instagram stories. I was so struck by her story, how we shared so many similarities in our work-from-home setups and shamelessly got way too invested in how her day was shaping up. Who am I kidding? I'm not embarrassed about anything. Welcome to the show, Callie. Hi, thanks for having me. That is so nice. And I love that you think I'm captivating sitting at home working in sweatpants like you do too. (laughs) I know. I know. It's the exact same thing. (laughs) I can't even say sweatpants. So I'm like PJs until 3 p.m. (laughs) Sweatpants is what I leave the house in. So, (laughs) Okay. So this is where I have guests give me their elevator pitch. So if we were in an elevator together, how would you introduce yourself to me in the 20 to 30 seconds between floors that would spark my interest and give me the best overall view of who you are and what you do? Okay, go. Uh, My name is Kelly Youngstrom. I'm the owner-operator of KY Fitness and Nutrition Consulting. I've been doing health and fitness coaching for five to six years now. I'm a certified personal trainer, a weight management specialist, and a sports nutritionist. And I say that I help people be their happiest, healthiest selves through creating a sustainable lifestyle. It sounds like you've done that before. I mean, I have a marketing degree and there was a lot of, (laughs) you know, elevator pitches were highly focused on. So I think if somebody asked me mine, I'd be very like, um, so that was awesome. I love it. Oh, good, good. As long as it sounds impressive. (laughs) So in past episodes, I brought on guests to put me under the microscope and bring topics to the podcast that interested them. Today, I'm turning the tables and putting Kelly in the hot seat at the mercy of my questions. I've only done this once before, so hopefully I don't totally butcher it. Hopefully I have answers (laughs) to your questions. Okay, so like I mentioned at the start of the podcast, you're a fitness and nutrition coach. People generally aren't born knowing that this is what they'll be doing for the rest of their life. 
So generally, they just start by getting into fitness and nutrition themselves and loving it and then having it snowball from there. So how did your journey start initially? Yeah, I think that's so true. Like, I think you kind of fall into it. So I started as an athlete. I wrestled at a high level all through high school. And then we were talking before the show, I was meant to wrestle in university, but I couldn't because of injury. And so through there, eventually I found bodybuilding, which was like my next outlet. So I went from nutrition and, you know, fuel and nourishment as an athlete into nutrition as a bodybuilder and seeing how different that was. And along the way, that's kind of how my Instagram started just sharing my journey into bodybuilding, which was completely new for me at the time. And as I started progressing, I had like lots of friends and family and people coming out of the woodwork asking me for advice on nutrition and workouts and requesting me to put programs together for them. And I didn't feel comfortable until I thought I had an actual education base of some sort. So while I was in university, I was not focused on nutrition or fitness. I was doing a psychology degree and a marketing degree. But during the February break, I got my personal training certificate. And then I just continued to take more certificates, take on clients. And then by the time I was done university, I had a full client base. So it just kind of exactly it snowballed. And as I personally got more invested into health and fitness, I got more invested into my business as well. Okay, I'm not going to lie. I don't know a whole ton about competitive bodybuilding, but I do feel like some people get into it only seeing how fabulous people look on stage and not understanding the dedication and mental toughness of it. So when someone approaches you about competing, do you have the discussion with them about the stuff that sucks as well? Yeah, and I think that the mental aspect is something that's not focused on enough in bodybuilding. I think wrestling really prepared me for bodybuilding because it's such a sport focused on mental fortitude. So by the time I got to bodybuilding, I had kind of already built that mental toughness. Uh, so anytime someone wants to prepare for a show, I try to tell them all the hard stuff and that you're stage physique is like a flash in the pan. The problem being that even the most level-headed people, if they, you know, they go into a show thinking, I understand that this is temporary, I'm not going to look like this long term. But once you see that physique and you get all this external gratification and compliments and, you know, like the Instagram likes and followers start rolling in because you look impressive, it's really hard to let that physique go. But it's not meant to be a physique that's sustained to that level long term. So I always do like a almost my version of a psychological assessment as to whether I think someone is going to be mentally prepared and it's the healthiest thing for them mentally and physically to get on stage. And I think a lot of people forget about assessing the mental side before deciding to compete. What would you say was the worst part in all the years that you did it? Like what what every show you prepared for what was the one thing you were like, oh, and once you knew it was coming, you're like, this is going to suck? I think that for me, individual sport, and it's such a time investment. So, you know, for most people, it's an hour or hours of cardio every day, a really restricted diet. I think for most people, the hardest part is probably the social aspect or lack of socializing. Um, you know, Thanksgiving's coming up here when we're recording this. And so, to be in prep would potentially mean you're weighing your food, you're taking it to your 
family's house or your in-laws or wherever and having to navigate that side of things. And for a lot of people, that's not worth it. Like you have to make that decision early on. But I think for the majority of people, the the worst part is actually post-show. And most people don't think beyond the stage. They think up until show day and where the biggest challenge for most people comes is actually after the show. Yeah, like they can grind through it because they know the show is coming. Yeah, so they, goal. they put up with the suck. And then, yeah, I've one time I was at a birthday party with a friend who had a show coming up and it was such a fun birthday. And she just turned and looked at me and was like, I have to go home. I'm too hungry. Oh. And it was like the most heartbreaking thing. I was like, oh, and it wasn't, you know, it, like it wasn't like a pressure to for her to be drinking or anything like everybody was like having a good time, you know, yeah. at the party. She was just too hungry to be out any longer and had to go to bed. Yeah. And probably like getting ready to break if she stayed for five more minutes. Yeah. yeah. And so and that's the thing. A lot of people isolate themselves, I would say, when they're competing because the the easy thing is to stay home. It's work to go out when you're t- exhausted. You've probably already trained twice that day. You've had – if you go out, you have to take your meals with you. You have to be back at a certain time. Like the easy thing, honestly, is to stay. And so I think it's really important if you're a competitor to force yourself to maintain some sort of social structure still. And you owe it to your friends and family. Like I always say, your friends and family aren't the ones – signing up for this. Yes, they're supportive, but they still expect you to be at events and supporting them and, you know, be there for them. Did you find it hard on relationships with friends and family? Like being in the state that you were in, again, a different friend was like, I was so hard on my husband during the time that I was in prep. Yeah, I always said that my partner at the time, like I would never have been able to do it without him. So he had competed the first time I competed. We competed in the same show. So he instantly knew what I was going through. And he was my number one cheerleader the entire way. He never missed a show. So it was like we were doing it together. You know, even though he wasn't on stage, he honestly was probably more stressed out when I was on stage than I was. And having that support and someone who, you know, gets if I have to go home and have a meal or I am too tired to go out made all of the difference. And my family, I mean, beyond supportive. And they they know the intensity that I operate at. So I don't think that they were surprised when I went, you know, from zero to 60 getting into bodybuilding. I think that the hardest thing was friends. And I, I for sure, when I began, I was young, like I was just past 20. Um, and I didn't do the best job navigating my friendships around bodybuilding at, at the start. And that was something I had to, to learn the hard way as I went. But I think 20 year olds in general already have a hard time navigating friendships. Oh yeah. And then when you're adding something extra to it, it was probably so much more yeah. difficult. Yeah. And like when you're 20, when's the, the like the majority of the time that you see your friends is probably going out or, you know, and so being a university student, I was trying to balance going to school, taking clients, continuing to get more certificates to help with my training and nutrition, you know, prepping for shows and then to somehow find room for friendships on top of that. Friendships were for sure one of the things that I 
put to the side first, you know, unfortunately. And it was a learning process. Okay. So I'm also a nutrition coach. Um, but if somebody came to me saying, I want to prep for a show, I honestly know nothing about prep and would have to recommend them on to an expert. So we talked about the stuff that sucked. But if you were to explain what your diet looked like during a cutting phase for your show when you were competing, like how many calories you were consuming, like what your macros, like you're laughing right now, like how long did it last for, you know? So, okay, I have to disclaimer and preface this by saying I, the entire time I was competing, said do as I say, not as I do, because I was always willing to push myself to a level that I would absolutely never ask or recommend anyone else to push themselves to. And it's actually one of the reasons I've essentially stopped taking on prep clients. I, since I've stopped competing, have started winding down prepping other people. I do lifestyle. I do, you know, athletes, but I am not doing bodybuilders unless it's someone very specific who I see has potential and also has the mental fortitude and I know will have a positive prep. So, I mean, I've, I've competed for four years, prepped for like five years. And so I had a lot of ebbs and flows and different approaches within that time. For me, the majority of that time was a keto diet, but that's because that's what I prefer and feel good on. I have been eating keto for like six years. So not that that's what you have to do. That's what I felt best on. And so that was a choice. And I prepped myself basically the entire time I was competing. So I didn't work with a coach telling me what to eat. A lot of it was trial and error on my part. Uh, But I was pretty restricted. I would keep my protein super, super high, like over 200 grams. These days I'm like, when I'm eating keto, I'm eating maybe 70 grams of protein a day. Again, different than what you would be eating. But so like over 200 grams of protein a day, I always did unlimited veggies. So I never was going to weigh or measure vegetables. Like if it was a non-starchy veggie, if that's not what's going to make or break a prep. Sorry, just for any of my people listening, I just want you to explain, no, like why, why? Because they're going to be like, Ashlyn always wants me eating over a hundred grams of protein. (laughs) But why? Listen to your coach. No, but I think it's interesting. You eat like 70 grams of protein because what happens when you eat more protein? Because in a ketogenic diet, if you eat too much protein, it can kick you out of ketosis. So via a process called gluconeogenesis. So, and I don't expect most people listening to be doing keto. So just to show you though, the, you know, the difference of, I was probably in ketosis, the majority of my preps, even though I was I was just eating more protein. Now it's a a choice. I just don't feel well. I don't need to eat that much protein. I'm not trying to hold so much mass. Uh, But so I ate mostly lean protein. So technically I was in ketosis. I wasn't optimizing a keto diet because my fats were quite low the majority of the time, lower than I would recommend a female have them. And the highest my carbs ever were if I was eating carbs was probably like 70 grams. Like that's high carb for me is 70 grams. So when people eat like over a hundred grams of carbs in a normal day, I just can't imagine that because I've- We're over 200 Yeah, yeah. But also you're training at such a high output. Like, you know, bodybuilding training, yes, it's intense, but it's not that high intensity like you're doing in the gym. Well, yeah. And CrossFit's different, right? It's a glycolytic sport. And that's, I think, what people- don't understand and and there's different diets too for you know people who 
do CrossFit, like go to the CrossFit general CrossFit classes, but they're looking for weight loss and things like that, they probably don't need to be having carbs and carbs don't work well with some people's bodies. And I feel like that's where, you know, people are maybe like, okay, she does keto. I should do keto, but keto is what works for her. Yeah, absolutely. So you have to find what works best for you. Yeah. And I've, I, you know, like I, after bodybuilding got into powerlifting and for powerlifting, I was like, I should be eating carbs. Like I, for performance and, you know, pre and post workout, intra workout, this would be optimal. And I felt like crap. I lifted like crap. And so it's totally just what works for me. When I started doing keto, it was not because of a physique choice or a health choice even. It was because I noticed that my cognitive clarity was a hundred times greater when I wasn't eating carbs. So actually in university, I just slowly started cutting out the things that I noticed made me feel foggy and lethargic. And then within a few months, I was just accidentally keto almost. And I always have gone back to it. Yeah. And that's the other thing too, because some people are like, oh, like some things make me feel bloated and gross and whatever. And you know, it's different bodies and, you know, the different ways that people metabolize your carbs and things like that. So that's why people need to keep, you know, an open mind about different types of diets too. So when you were in prep, would you say how many calories were you taking in at like your lowest point? Yeah. So usually I would prep for like five to six months. So I did a really long prep and basically I would slowly taper down my calories and increase my cardio. So I was probably eating somewhere between 12 to 1500 calories, but my output was insane. Like I would do hours of cardio for me. That's what it took for me to get lean. And that's the thing. Everybody's metabolism is so different. I know a lot of coaches who are like, you know, if you're coach, your physique coach is is telling you to do more than an hour of cardio, you're with the wrong coach. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think that everybody's body is different and how hard it is to get lean. And especially as a female, like we're cutting down for bodybuilding to body fat percentages you're not supposed to be at as a female realistically. So it's going to take effort that you shouldn't have to do. So, you know, for me, I was eating maybe 12 to 1500 calories at the end of a prep, but I was doing two hours on the stepper and then an hour of weight training and posing on top of it. So, and that's not even like, I would have expected less actually. Like I, we talk about (laughs) diet myths all the time and everybody thinks to lose weight, you need to eat a thousand calories. It's crazy. It is crazy. And I did it at one point, like way, way back in the day when I didn't have a clue about anything that I was doing and just remembering it and remembering how I feel and like I was getting injured and things in the gym and I didn't know what was happening. And people always go back to that. And I don't know, do you find this with clients too, that sometimes, you know, you'll give them their nutrition advice and they're like, yeah, I can eat all this food. And you're like, you know, come on, just like, trust me on this. Like sometimes it's a, it's a bit of a battle. Absolutely. And I do a lot of reverse diets where a client comes to me on 1200 calories and I'm like, all right, we're going to work this up because your metabolic capacity needs to increase and your metabolic health. And that's a thing I could have eaten less and done less cardio, but I think that the metabolic damage done by eating under what I was eating, you know, is a greater risk than doing more cardio. So even though I was pushing myself to this max, I was always trying to keep my metabolic health in mind as much as I could. Right. And like, 
So would you say you've had any adverse health effects from it? Like you're pretty open in your social media posts. And one of the things you talk about is your knee and like joint pain and things like that. And, you know, if you sleep poorly, that you you feel like your immune system's like compromised immediately because you're open about oh, yeah, things like about that. And, and so when I was prepping, even though I was posting these impressive photos, I would even in the caption put like, yes, this looks sweet if that's what you're going for. It looks impressive. It looks whatever you think it looks or awful, depending on, you know, what you think. But I feel awful. Like I tried to remind people of that because I would have young girls being like, ah, goals, I want to look like that. And I'm like, you want to look like that, but I don't want you to do what it takes to do that. But the biggest thing when I was prepping and, you know, I think it's probably mostly women listening to us. I don't know. Maybe it's TMI for some, but my biggest issue was amenorrhea. So I didn't have a period for five years on end. Like there was at no point in five years that I got it back. And so when I made the decision to stop competing, it wasn't necessarily about my health at that time in place, but I knew that for my future health, I was going to need to make some changes. My knees have always been an issue for mine. And to train at the level and at the leanness I was training and to try and, you know, build all this mass that I needed for the right shape on stage for what they want to see, like my body just couldn't handle it. And when I was prepping, when you're eating 1,200 calories and doing three hours in the gym and you're breaking down every single day and I never took rest days, I very rarely took rest days when I was in preps. I got strep throat all the time. I was always getting sick and I was on stage with strep throat like many times. So yeah, there's a lot. And I think that's a thing we see the photos and not everyone has that experience. I'm not saying that that's it for everyone, but it just depends on your body and how hard you have to push yourself. Like I'm not a naturally lean person. My body puts on mass, but it wants to hold it. And so I really have to like go to that hard place to get stage lean. And because I competed in figure, that's like sub 10% body fat for a female. And so, yeah, I had to go to extremes, but I was willing to, and I consciously knew what I was doing the entire time, but I just knew it wasn't something I was going to do for the rest of my life. Do you think though it did affect your immune system like now? Um... Do you know what? No, I think like my body, well, so first of all, I'll say as soon as I made the decision to stop competing in finality. Like I was not never going to go back. I let my body just put on weight. I in the past would do like slow reverse diets, but I felt poorly enough and I knew that I needed my hormone health to get back on track that I just let my body bounce back to wherever it was going to go. And I knew it was not going to be fun. Like I knew it was going to be a lot higher than what I wanted to. I was going to put on weight easily because I'd been so restricted for so long, but I wanted to just feel better right away. And so I think not dragging that process out helped in just getting my immune system back on track. I was able to recover my period within like six months, which was, I think, huge considering it had been gone for five years. So yeah, I think I pushed my body through a lot, but it did recover quite quickly. I mean, right now I'm sick. (laughs) That's just, that's just unrelated. (laughs) Yeah. And this is like, we're in a, like a no judgment zone, right? It's just like. Yeah. I don't think it's had lasting effects on my immune system for sure. Lasting effects on my joints and injuries that I will deal with now for the rest of my life, but nothing 
groundbreaking, nothing I can't work around. But again, it's one of the reasons I knew I needed to stop. Like at 25, I shouldn't have hurt as bad as I did. But I also was willing to risk that to be a pro. And that's a thing for me. I will forever think it's worth it because I reached the goal that I had set. If I never reached that goal, it would be a lot harder to like swallow those sacrifices. No, for sure. And so you competed for four years, correct? Yeah, technically I competed for three years as an amateur. And then at my, the end of my third year competing, I won my pro card and I competed just for one year as a pro. Okay. So I see a lot of people get into like bikini shows and things like that. And they do well their first year. And then they kind of ride that high and you're kind of, you're smiling. I mean, you kind of know where I'm going with this, um, but it's hard to obtain. And what I wanted to know was like, what sets apart the people who do well continuously and the people who did well that one time and are now trying to just ride that into another year that never happens into another year that never happens? What's the difference between them? I think, well, first of all, part of it's genetics. And I think that bodybuilding's become like so mainstream lately, like more the bikini and physique, the smaller divisions, I would say, in terms of mass. They've become so mainstream that people forget you still almost need to be genetically elite, right? I honestly have mediocre genetics. And that's one of the reasons I decided not to continue competing as a pro because I would never win the Olympia based on my genetics and my shape and my bone structure. Like there's just so much you can't change. So I think part of it's genetics. You can be, you can slide by in those first shows because everyone's an amateur. Everyone's their first year. So even if it's someone with great genetics, it's unlikely that they're have been, they've been training for five years before getting on stage. You know, you do see that sometimes. Uh, but beyond that, it's the people who treat the off season just as seriously as a prep. So when you're bodybuilding, you're bodybuilding 24, seven, 365, not that you're actively prepping for a show that whole time, but your off season training is taken just as seriously. You're not drinking and partying in the off season. You're still prepping your meals. You know exactly where your macros are. Every single day is calculated. And so for me, I always said, even if I lost and there was a lot of losses before I got that pro card. And I had that experience my first year. I won the overall my first show, but then I went on to provincials, didn't win. And then, you know, I had to grind through that. But I knew that every single day for the entire year, I had done everything in my power to make sure I did my best. And so I could I could accept a loss because I knew there was not a single thing I could have done more. And it's that's an intense way to look at it. Like there for me would be not a bite of something off plan because when I get on stage, I need to have known that there wasn't a single thing I could have changed. So I think that the people who experience success right away and then maybe are challenged and struggle after that, sometimes it's realizing the sport's not for them and they're not willing to sacrifice all of those things. And I think that's the thing. You either compete once and never again, or you compete and you're hooked and like, this is your life now. And so I think some of those people aren't ready and willing to make that 365 day investment. Yeah, I I think that is, and I guess that's the truth in any sport, but this is more you know, it's, it's so individualized that 
I think people have trouble seeing that and even thinking back like, did I give it 100% this year? So they look at you and they're like, well, that's what I want to do. Like, I want to be like her. But you, you know, trained every day. You dialed in your nutrition every day to get to what you wanted to go. You weren't, you know, out partying in the off season or things like that. And that's the difference maker, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's people that will say you don't have to take it that seriously and that that's an intense way to look at it. But it's an intense sport. And I feel like if you're going to be the best, that's how you look at it. You yeah, know? for sure. For sure. So I have a few, like quite a few friends who have competed at shows. And one time I went and watched one of them and they were just, they were explaining everything to me because it's fascinating. Like I honestly find it so fascinating. But he was telling me that one of the ways in order to stay competitive with bodybuilding is that athletes have to be using performance enhancing drugs. Is that a true statement? How is it regulated within the sport? And do you think that people competing in the sport feel pressured to use them? Uh, I think it's true for some people. Like there are definitely people using performance enhancing drugs. Uh, There are different. So it gets really complicated in the organizations. There's different organizations. There are drug-free and drug-tested organizations. But the IFBB, which is considered by most people, I should say, the elite of the elite. Like the gold standard? Yes, which is, so I always say, like, if Arnold Schwarzenegger was still competing, that's what he would be. He's an IFBB pro. He would be competing at the Olympia. It is technically not tested. And so I think that there's a level of common sense people need to use when they're looking at physiques. If you're looking at the guys who are the biggest bodybuilders in the world, does it look natural? It looks non-human and it probably is. And, you know, it's a decision that certain people make based on wanting to achieve their goal. And for some divisions like that, like bodybuilding, it is essentially impossible to probably gain the look that you want naturally. Uh, And so, yeah, I would say there's a lot of gray within it because, of course, they're not encouraging but they are not ensuring drug use doesn't happen. And I would say that more prevalent is the use of fat burners. So not necessarily anabolics, but fat burners and things that are not something you're going to find at a supplement store. And so that is one of the decisions that has also led me to not continue to compete because honestly, to be competitive and be as big as I would need based on my genetics to stand up and, you know, stand shoulder to shoulder with the girls competing at the highest level, I can't get that mass naturally. Like I would probably have to train for 20 years. And so that's a thing. Most people who get into it, I think, are unaware of how prevalent drug use is at the higher levels and and down the road. And that's something I was unaware of when I started, you know. Like, is it talked about? Like, is it, or is it something that is the elephant in the room, you know, amongst competitors? Oh, good question. I would say it's not really talked about. Uh, yeah, and I, I don't know. I, like, I've kind of been out of it for so long. I don't even really know what, like, what the discussion on it is now. 
I think that most people don't disclose and don't talk about it and, you know, for better or worse, like, and it's unfortunate that it has, has to be a conversation, you know, but it's become part of the sport, I guess. Yeah. And it, like, I feel like just the way that like this person was explaining it to me, I was like, oh, like it's, it's just the way things are. I would say it's different for men. And was this, your friend was a man? It was, yeah. I think that it's different for men because there are less risks involved. You're using anabolic hormones and there are less potential side effects, you know, with long, long term, I would say. Females, it's a whole different ballgame. Like that's just somewhere you don't want to go. Like I would say it's uncharted territory. So I think females end up more doing fat burners and that kind of thing where, yes, there's risks involved. Likely they're not long-term. And I think that it's more likely that men are willing to take that extra step. But that's the thing. It's it's not an easy solution. Like those guys are still working just as hard. Uh, I don't know. It's such a touchy subject. I'm always like scared of how it will be interpreted. But an example that I think people can understand is that, okay, so we all know Lance Armstrong was doping. Mm -hmm. So were probably everyone else in the top 20 or whatever. I know nothing about cycling, but you know what I mean? So if everyone wasn't doping, would he still be the best? Probably. Like if, if all of those 20 were all doping, let's say, uh, and then everyone wasn't, would the standing still be the same? And so if you look at bodybuilding that way, like for those guys at the highest level who all are using something likely, if they weren't and everyone was on a natural level, likely the standings would be the same. It just would be a different look. Like that's what I would say. But yeah, it's something that's like so touchy and and I don't think it is really talked about. I think that the risks are so not worth it, especially as a female. And so, yeah, that's just one of the decisions that I guess comes with the sport is how far you'll take that side of things. Interesting. See, I don't even know that there's fat burners bought outside of what ripped freak. Is that what? good? Like, don't know. (laughs) Just don't know because. But it, it is. It's fascinating. It's a whole new sport, right? And that is part of it. Part of you yeah, know, it's a decision that you might have some to of make. The, yeah, some of the athletes that, you know, take and I find it fascinating. Okay, so I've been following you on Instagram for a little while now. And as I said, I'm so captivated by your stories. You mentioned to me that you are primarily focusing on your health and healing now. And I was just wondering if you could elaborate on that. I know that you've been into health and fitness for many years. Uh, was there a period of time in your career where health and wellness wasn't your focus? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, I always say that there is a difference between health, fitness, and physique. And I've done YouTube videos. I've, like, beat this horse dead. But uh, when I was bodybuilding, I'm sure that to the external eye, and, and maybe not to someone like you who's really educated, but, you know, to most people who are unaware of what goes into it, you look at a physique like that and are like, oh my God, she's so fit and she's so healthy. At my best physique, I was at my least healthy, for sure, because I am so lean. I am, 
not focused on nutrition in the sense of nourishing my body to its maximum potential. I'm focused on nutrition as getting myself as lean as possible. I'm doing way more cardio than would ever be necessary for a level of heart health and then repetitive movements that are really hard on my joints. So I would say in my best physique in terms of bodybuilding physique and what's expected, I was at my least healthy. And I think, uh, you know, losing my period directly reflects that. And again, this is not a secret. It's all things that I talked about as I was going through it. And so that's why I, I would never do to a client or recommend to a client what I was doing for myself. But that was the decision I made at the time. And, and then when I stopped, which was about a year and a half ago now, I guess, from dieting, because after, um, bodybuilding, I had to maintain my weight for powerlifting for a period. So after I stopped that, I just wanted to feel better because everything hurt. I was sore. Um, I made a post the other day about that. My like quads were so big that it was like weird to run. It was uncomfortable to run. And, you know, preparing for bodybuilding, generally you're probably not running as a form of your cardio because you want to try and keep as much mass on your legs. Like there's just little things that I wanted to be able to do in health and fitness and make time for yoga and things that made me feel good. But when I was bodybuilding, I chose to not make that fit into my program because my priorities were different. Yeah, because going to yoga wasn't going to get you to the end goal, Yeah, right? Exactly. So you had to choose between something that was good. And also what other people need to realize too is that like women losing their periods happens in a lot of sports. Yes, so it's absolutely. not bodybuilding related. Um, it, yeah. And for some people, it's even just stress related. Yeah. It might not even be from the level of body fat. Like at that at that point, I was under 10% body fat. Some women lose it at a lot higher body fat. And everybody's different too as to how their body responds. No, for sure. And yeah, so I think that that's what my listeners will be like, oh, bodybuilding, you'll lose your period. No, it happens. It's, yeah, and, and there's lots of pros who are that lean and don't lose it. So again, it just completely, completely depends on the person. It's so individual. Okay. So I'm, we're going to talk about powerlifting now. Okay. Because <laughs> that is one of the things that we have in common is a love for heavy lifting. Yes. Um, <laughs> so after you retired from bodybuilding, you transitioned into powerlifting um, and it's a sport that really intrigues me as well. But again, I don't know a whole lot about it. I considered doing a meet one time, oh God, but yeah, but I never ended up signing up for one. I don't know why. Um, so again, there are different organizations, different regulations, those types of things. So if someone were interested into getting into powerlifting, how would you suggest which organization to compete in and what are the differences between them? And how did you decide which one to compete in? Okay, I will say that I powerlifted for like five minutes. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm the- You still know more than yeah, I do. Okay, but I don't know that much about federations. And I fell into federation based on the fact that there was a meet coming up in a week that I wanted to do. Okay. So I competed in CPA, Canadian Powerlifting Association. Yeah. Uh, so what had happened was I competed in my last pro show. I was maintaining that that physique and then essentially that body weight because I wasn't sure what my next step was. I was laying on the beach. It was the first weekend that I had free in an entire summer because I was done competing. And I was just like, you know, I'm 
I'm pretty strong right now. I'm strong for my weight, especially, which obviously is important in powerlifting. I should just see if there's a meet coming up. Like, okay. And now tell me, what did you weigh at the time? And like, what were you back squatting? I weighed 135 pounds and my heaviest squat was 290. So I wasn't, I honestly wasn't that strong. I hadn't been squatting power, like deadlifting, benching at all. Like I didn't really do the big lifts when I was training. I would do like Smith machine machine squats or high reps more. So I was kind of going from like zero to 60 when it came to powerlifting, but I was like, well, just see what happens. But my deadlift was like, I never had a really good single total on my deadlift, but my five by five was 300 pounds. So I was strong more for volume, not so much, but so I just like just and I'm the exact opposite. I'm strong for a one rep, not for volume, which is like they always say like that's like the men. The men are better for like a one as opposed to volume. Like that's better. Than the <laughs> Ladies, I'm like I'm the power athlete. But and that's a thing again, like it's so individual and dependent on your physique and a lot of it's structural too for lifts like that but so yeah I was just like googling if there was a meet coming up I thought it would be fun I always had kind of wanted to try powerlifting and I knew that I could be strong when I was focused on it I just hadn't been focused on it because close to show you're just trying to not get injured so you're not doing for me at least doing big lifts before a show so turns out there was a meet in a week in Red Deer. And so we drove back from the lake. I tested my three lists to see how things were feeling. And I was like, Googled what the national records were for the year prior. It was a fairly new organization. So there was only, I think, like two or three years of- What is the other organization? Do you even know? I don't know. There's oh. a there's like quite a few, oh, is I there? think. Okay. Yeah, I think, I think. And so this was just what was coming up next. And so that was the deciding factor (laughs) and that it was semi-close. So yeah, went home, tested my lifts and I was like, okay, based on what the records were last year, I think I could beat some and that would be cool. That was really like my deciding factor. So I went and I got records in bench squat and like my total maybe. But yeah, it really wasn't impressive. It was just because there hadn't been many years of females lifting in this organization. So, but that qualified me for worlds. And so then all of a sudden I was like, and now I have to maintain this weight for like two or three more months. And to maintain that weight, I was doing a full bodybuilding prep and then trying to power lift on top of it. Because the reason I was 135 pounds, and I think I actually competed at 132 or 133, now I sit at 155. Like, so that is not a weight my body is meant to be at. And so I had to maintain that by doing two hours of cardio a day, plus dieting how I was for stage, and then trying to power lift on top of it. So by the time I got to Worlds, which were in Las Vegas, my strength was through the floor. My max lifts on that day ended up being what my openers were previously. So my body had just had enough. And then I really hurt my knee. I or both my knees really trying to squat that day. Uh, and I just could feel things go. And I was like, yeah, it's, it's time. And I knew I was pushing my limit by trying to maintain it that long because at that point I had maintained like 10% body fat for almost a year, which is crazy. crazy. Yeah, it was crazy. So yeah, but I kind of thought like I was going out with a bang and I knew I was going to be done soon. So I was okay with <laughs> making that final push. And then after that, I was like, I'm done. I won't diet again. I won't, you know, I won't compete again because I was, I was done. I achieved what I wanted to. Yeah, for sure. Um, do you feel like 
with the prep and stuff that you had in the past, like you just have a, I don't really see a bad taste in your mouth about, you know, like dieting or prep or anything like that. But I wouldn't say that. I am so grateful like for the experiences that I had in bodybuilding. And I'm very like, I can put my head down and work. Like if I had to do prep tomorrow, I, I could. It's more that as I matured within myself and within fitness and being a coach, I didn't like what bodybuilding represented to me. And I think that was the thing, that it's such a subjective sport focused on the external. And I had positive experience. I didn't struggle much personally with body image or any sort of disordered eating, you know, post-show or anything like that because I was aware of what I was doing and getting myself into. But seeing that that is not the norm, that's definitely the exception. Like I didn't really want to be a part of something that didn't seem healthy for most people. And I think that was part of it is that I was like, I want to be a role model. Is this me being the best role model that I can be? I don't think so. Because I, I, as much as I tried to always give the disclaimers about, you know, this is what it takes to look like this, people just see the photos and they get blinded by that and want to look like that. And so, yeah, it was more just that it was like the end of a season in my life. I don't think it was negative at the time or anything like that. It just was more I was ready to grow out of it. And also some of it was being realistic as to what my genetics and my physique would allow. And so I'm sure that if I thought I would have the chance to win the Olympia ever, if I worked hard enough at it, that I would keep going. But based on my shape and, you know, a lot of genetic factors, I just am not that person. So it's not worth it for me. And now I can help everyone else be healthy and fit and learn from, you know, my experiences. Yeah. And you kind of touched on it right there. So you are an influencer. You're an influencer. (laughs) (laughs) But it's true. You're an influencer. Um, And we were talking about this a little bit when we first got here. So you have almost 35,000 followers on Instagram, which is crazy for, you know, this is Saskatoon, right? Um, So when did you find that people really got on board the Cali train? Oh, my goodness. Like, what what deemed you that influencer? And, like, what does it mean to you? Uh, Well, first of all, thank you. I have to say, I don't view myself as, you know, I don't view myself as, as that. I just, I'm so grateful. And... I hate, I never like to use the word like follower. I use the word supporter. Like everyone there is supporting me and has supported me through all of these crazy journeys I've been on. You know, like some of those people have been paying attention to what I've been posting since the very first time I decided I was going to be doing a show. And then, you know, into competing and getting my pro card and then powerlifting and now continuing to support me despite the fact that I've really done a 180 away from that and and so just focused on health and longevity and feeling good. But the majority of that growth happened early on. And Part of it because of what I was doing, I was sharing my, you know, journey to the stage and people really liked being a part of that journey. And also Instagram was a lot less saturated at that time. So we were talking about this earlier that at that time there were like pages that shared fitness pictures and stuff, which still happens, but just 
I feel like not at the same extent. So I would have a day where someone shared a photo of me where I looked really impressive or you could see my abs or whatever it was. And all of a sudden I would get a big influx of followers. That doesn't really happen, you know, for me anymore. And I'm okay with that. And honestly, that was a big decision that I had to make when I was deciding to go away from stage and go away from that physique is I knew I was going to lose certain followers and some traction in that sense. But I had to be okay with that in that that's not my journey anymore. And so it's been a big transition, like going from that and from people knowing and relating me and, you know, putting me in that box in their own mind of like, this is who Callie is or KY Fitness to to going away from that. I think it's confusing for people. And sometimes people don't like that change or they only came to see me as a bodybuilder and they don't want to see that anymore. But now I can bring in new people who want to follow my journey of health and, you know, body positivity and, and embracing that side of things. Yeah. Like I know. And it, it seems crazy and people would be wondering like, what, like, what does it matter about Instagram followers? But when you're in the business that we are like, you like we talked about this a little bit before it's like we get a lot of people that support us and want to work with us from social media so that you know is something too and like you said you've changed over the years from doing you know coaching with prep and things like that to you know more health and wellness in general focused so you know you wonder are the people following me because you know they're going to want to work with me now or did they just want to see what I had to offer then and that is hard when you have one you know goal for such a long time and now you're going into a different route and it's like is this going to affect my business yeah. you know it plays a, a larger role than people might think yeah it was really scary and part of I guess the leap that I had to take was I want to be a role model for what a normal, healthy female can look like. And like you're a normal, healthy female. We have very different bodies. I think that on social media, there was a period where I was only seeing one type of body. And I honestly don't think that sometimes those fitness fitspos are being transparent about what it actually takes to look that way as well and the investment that they're making to look that way and the imbalance that happens potentially in life to look a certain way. And so I try to view it as an opportunity to say like, look, I know I can look this way if I want to, but here's what I look like when I'm still working out every day. I'm eating a healthy, balanced diet. I'm not stressed about food every single day. I have that balance and this is what I look like and I feel good and I love my body and my business has actually grown. So I was so worried about making that change, but by showing my journey, it's actually encouraged more women who just want to focus on their health and well-being. And I do a lot of hormone balancing. I work with a lot of clients with PCOS, type 2 diabetes, like I just opened up a broader demographic of clients that I potentially was intimidating or, you know, was just not right for them at the time. So it's been an amazing transition. Yeah. And it's so funny because that's what I feel people relate to the most as well, right? Like I had let myself gain weight and I didn't know how to, you know, gain control of that again. And people like to see, you know, like the normalcy that's out there as well. And I feel like that's why 
people connect with my journey as well. Yeah, transparency is the most important part. And like that's why I love Instagram stories because I just always try to be as transparent as possible. And it allows potential clients to get to know you right away and see if it's going to be a match. Because I always say that not every coach is right for every client. Not every client is right for every coach. That kind of takes the guesswork out for a client to know if they're going to you know, gravitate to you. And I was talking about this earlier in the week that I think the client coach relationship in what I do, which is so one-on-one and I'm sure with what you do as well, that connection and emotional support and trust is so crucial. And so by sharing as much as I do on Instagram, which is sometimes maybe oversharing, it enables a client or a potential client to know already if they think that I'm going to be a good fit for them. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Okay. So last question. With all of the ups and downs that you had, because there has been highs and lows, you talk about it openly. Would you have changed anything? No. Oh my God. I'm a big, okay, we didn't plan this, guys. I'm a big believer in the butterfly effect. Oh. So if I would have changed one thing along the way, I wouldn't be where I am right now. So who knows? There were times probably when I was competing and it was awful and hard and I was losing that I was like, why did I start doing this? But no, I'm so grateful. And that's the thing. I think that I never want it to come off as that I regret bodybuilding or I'm not so grateful for it. Bodybuilding created my business for me. It got me to where I am. It showed me that I want to make other people's lives better for a living. And that's the biggest gift that I could ever imagine. And if I wouldn't have started bodybuilding, I never would have found coaching. So no, there's nothing I regret. And I think that it's only been a gift and it's taken me on such a unique path. But now I don't have to do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we didn't we didn't plan that, you guys, but that was amazing. It (laughs) the butterfly effects. Yeah, like and that's what it's all about. And people listening, it's you know, about making that change that causes the ripple effect. So if you know anything that we talked about today or anything causes any sort of something, whether it's an action or a thought or something that starts someone's journey in a positive manner, that's why I do it. And I talk about this often. I don't make any money from doing this podcast. I do it to hopefully help inspire someone. And by the people that I bring on here and the people that listen to me talk, that maybe there's something that someone says create something positive in their life as well. So that Absolutely. that fit in perfectly to like tie up so the smooth. whole look at that. Oh. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much for meeting up with me today so we could finally say that we know each other in real life now too. Yes, IRL. Thank you so much for having me. You're incredible. <laughs> thank you. If you enjoyed the episode, all I ask is that you screenshot it and share it on your Instagram story or feed to show your love. This way, the show can continue to grow and expand its listeners. The show exists because of sponsorship, so in order for me to have sponsors support it, it needs to have a following of subscribers and ratings. Taking the time to share it with your followers will totally help keep it thriving. If you're interested in sponsoring an episode, please get in touch with me and I can give you all of the details so we can start working on promoting and advertising your business. Head over to my Instagram page at sweat underscore effect for all of my insights, experiences, and daily dose of goodness. Until next time, keep on having fun and keeping fit.